Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today, we're going to explore findings from a new poll of student success leaders that shows surging interest in the use of data and analytics. The findings seem to indicate that university leaders may have enough breathing room now, both literally and metaphorically, to move out of crisis mode and take a hard look at what the analytics tell them about what's working and what isn't in their efforts to support their students. The conversation is an important one, so give these folks a listen and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Ed Bennett. I lead our student success research, and I am uh, glad to be back on the pod with you today. Uh, Joined by my colleague, David Bebevino, who I believe this is your first time on the pod, is it not, David? That is right. All right. Well, could you... uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do at EAB. Uh, you've been around for a while. I've really enjoyed working with you over the years, so I'm glad you could make it onto the podcast today. Yeah, I'm excited to be on. Um, I've been with EAB for uh, about 11 years, and most of that time uh, worked on a lot of our student success research for our provost uh, partners, as well as our community college presidents and their teams. Um, But over the past couple of years, I've led EAB's technology partner experience team, which brings a lot of our research and consulting and and networking uh, to our broader student success collaborative of about 850 schools or so. Uh, And one of the projects that I work on in in that role is also the Moonshot for Equity. I know today we'll we'll end up talking a little bit about equity, so I'm I'm excited to share a bit more there. But it's great to be on uh, as a a rookie. (laughs) Well, welcome. Uh, the, uh, we certainly will talk about equity. You want to say a little bit more about the moonshot and what we're doing for anybody who might not be familiar, because I'm sure we'll come back to that, just given you and I tend to talk about the moonshot quite often. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. So the for, for folks who haven't heard about it, the, the moonshot for equity is our initiative to erase equity gaps in regions of the country across two-year and four-year institutions coming together to implement best practices, um, engage in equity mindedness training, engage in capacity building and leadership development. And we're we're doing that, as I said, all in the service of eliminating equity gaps across race and ethnicity, income, uh, and first generation status. Uh, and when I say eliminating equity gaps, I mean in graduation and retention. So it's an incredibly exciting um, initiative we've been doing. We're working in the Milwaukee Kenosha region. We're working in southeastern Pennsylvania. Greater Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, and lots of conversations across other parts of the country as well. Uh, it brings together a lot of different parts of EAB and teaches us a ton about the, the challenges that, that institutions are facing, especially uh, as we've been uh, going through the pandemic and, you know, fingers crossed, uh, emerging from it at, at least a bit. That's right. Uh, so very glad to, uh, to work with you on that. I've had a great experience working with the Moonshot over the last couple of years, and what I've learned from it, it's Nothing like uh, rolling up your sleeves and really getting into something to understand, you know, the nuances and details of why something like closing equity gaps is so hard yeah. uh, and why it has been a struggle over time. It's a very complex and, and deep issue with a lot of facets to it. Uh, so it's been as much, I think, a learning exercise for us as it is a service delivery exercise. And the one that I think we're going to get even smarter with going forward, mm-hmm. you know, soft plug, if any listeners want to learn more about the Moonshot for Equity, go on to EAB.com and put that as a search term. It will pop right up. Uh, and ch- there's a chance you'll talk to either me or David at some point. <laughs> if you, if you That's right. That. Yeah, we'll be excited to. So if you enjoy hearing our voices, there's a chance to hear that even more uh, in the future. 
But that's not what we're going to talk about specifically today. Uh, one of the things that David and I have done over the years is that we were both uh, cut our teeth in the research division at EAB. Uh, that was, of course, the core of what we do. Uh, and it's also the oldest thing of what we do. It's uh, sort of the original conceptualization, if you will, of what the firm is, a best practice research firm. And uh, one of the things that we've done over the years is uh, do topic pools to understand a little bit more about what our partners, our members, uh, they've evolved over the years, are interested in us working on. Uh, and David, I know you've had a lot of experience with these polls in the past. Um, you know, let's set it up for the audience so they understand what we're talking about and why this is something of interest to them, uh, why they should you know, continue to listen to us. <laughs> for the next yeah, week. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we've been, gosh, we've been doing topic polls for since we started doing our, our research uh, at EAB in, back in 2007. And they're they're a great way for us to get a sense of and a snapshot in time and then looking at them year over year, what is top of mind for our partners uh, in terms of specific problems they're trying to solve, the major issues that, that they're facing, and where do those things fall in their list of priorities, not just what they're focused on, because, you know, if you think about a provost or community college president or, or a, a four-year university president, they're focused on so many things, but what's that order of priority? And then how does that differ across different types of institutions and different types of leaders um, within an organization? Um, so they're always it's always a highlight of a year for us. It guides a lot of the work that we do for, uh, for the programs that we put on for our partners, whether it's for Connected, our major student success conference, or for any of our other research, excuse me, research white papers and, and things like that. It's a it's a great moment. Yeah, it's uh, one of the great things about EAB that that I know we both really strongly believe in is the sort of democratic notion of we're going to work on what our partners want and what most of them want is going to be the thing that we preface the most. And polls are a way to get that. There are a couple of nuances here, of course, as well, which is uh, something may not show up high on a poll, but be a critically important issue. And the reason why it might not show up that high is we've talked about over the years, either we've already done a lot of work on that and our partners feel satisfied, um, or everybody understands this is a big issue, but it may not be within their purview. Mm -hmm. Can't do much about it. Um, and I think we should come back and talk about two of those things as we get yep. into the the, uh, the poll, two really interesting things. Uh, and I'll, I'll tease you right now. One of them is mental health and there's transfer students. So we should come back to that as we discuss the poll results and explain kind of the nuance between well, this is a very important issue, but no one seems to feel the ownership over it. Yep. Uh, and what might that, might that mean for the future of where we might go here? I also share your enthusiasm for the polls because it's a way to get a, a real snapshot into what, uh, what our partners want. It's also an indication of where the overall trajectory of where people's interest is. So I like thinking about this in the year-over-year -year change. And you know me, given my background in paleontology, I tend to think about year-over-year -year change. Usually it's on the course of much many, longer time frame, <laughs> a little bit longer, you would think. But in this case, it is interesting to see how it's evolved. Now, with this particular topic poll, one of the interesting things about it, maybe the most interesting thing is the last time we did a poll was February 2020. Literally right before we all went home. And we did that poll, analyzed it. You may recall this. <laughs> you and I had a meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, we did the poll. We analyzed it and we realized none of this matters anymore. The world has changed so much just in the course of a couple of weeks that we just throw the poll out and we had to start doing more qualitative kind of gathering of information as people's interest shifted from high level strategic thinking about the future of higher education down to we need to make sure our students have devices so they can go to school. 
It's a completely different conversation. Yep. yep. How do we switch our faculty to, to online teaching right. overnight, basically? I think we're bringing up a lot of bad feelings for the audience, so let's move on <laughs> to that. The, uh, but we're now returning to the moment where we can think, think about these big ideas. I've had presidents describe to me their job as, and provost as well, you know, what boils down to, I'm normally supposed to be steering the ship, but I'm spending all my time bailing water these days. So hopefully we're getting back a little bit to the steering of the ship uh, as we go forward. And I think the poll is a good indication that we're seeing some of those things start to pop. I'm very interested to see how the world changed because of the pandemic within the poll results and what we're being asked for from our, uh, from our, our partners in a way that we weren't before. So I'm very interested in that change. Uh, with all that preamble, why don't we get into some of the things that we've we picked out uh, as we've looked at this. And just so everybody knows, uh, David and I have spent a lot of time looking at these results and debating them back and forth. We're just going to kind of give you a window into our conversations. We've also talked with a lot of our partners about this uh, in small groups. Maybe you can share a little bit about kind of like forums we're getting this feedback from. Uh, and then we'll share with you a little bit about what we're finding. Yeah, we've brought this up in a, in a couple of different areas. Uh, we have one group in particular, our Student Success Innovation Council, which is a group of about 20, 20 24 partners uh, mm -hmm. that we we have a, an annual nomination process and uh, in, internally and, and select those partners to give us advice on our student success research strategy, our product strategy, uh, our services, and, and everything like that. And these are some of our most engaged partners every year that we uh, we love to get their feedback on, on everything. And they brought up some really interesting points about how they would have changed their answers if they had uh, answered the poll three weeks later, um, or, or even, I think one of them said even, you know, a week or two later, they yeah. got access to some data that changed their mind on it. So that was fascinating. Um, we've shared it with our internal teams uh, to see how it reflects the conversations that, that they're having, especially our, our Navigate and Starfish strategic leaders. Those folks have been great to, um, to engage more in, in those conversations. And um, I don't know if you've taken it. I know you've probably taken it more one-on-one -on -one with some, uh, some partners as well. Um, I, I've done it in, in a, a few of those group settings. I'd be curious to hear who you've taken it to. Uh, yeah, I have talked to individuals and shown the results to and gotten a lot of the same feedback that, that you've heard in your groups. Um, interesting enough, I've also talked to some industry associations about this mm. uh, and shared with them, figuring that they might be curious to see what we're seeing uh, as well. Uh, we're trying to, of course, advance everybody's knowledge in this regard. We don't uh, diminish our light if we light someone else's candle in this regard. And their feedback's been really interesting as well, very much in line with what we're about to share. Um, and I'll echo a lot of the things that you and I have heard and, and discussed with each other about why it is that some of these things might be being prefaced more than any others. So let's get into some of the results. Uh, I want to describe the poll. It's hard because it's a podcast. We can't show you the data, but I'm going to have to describe it for you. This is what it looks like. It's 21 questions that are all student success style topics. We might ask about coordinated care networks. We might ask about data analytics. We might ask about mentioned transfer students and mental health. Um, the, you know, students in careers, adult learners, guided pathways, you name it. We put it all on the list, all the kind of hot topics. Then we ask everybody who takes the poll to grade on a A through F GPA scale, and then we calculate the GPAs for each topic, rank order, and then the things that are at the top uh, are good. Generally, anything that's over a 3 is, is pretty hot. We subdivide the, uh, the, the responses by type of school, public, private, two-year, four-year, different size schools, different selectivity, different graduation rates, 
Um, and then we kind of look for differences between the schools to understand there's actually a lot of heterogeneity within higher ed and, you know, a, a, you know, an Ivy League school and a community college have different priorities. And so, you know, they might view the world in a very different mm -hmm. way. One of the things that struck me about this poll was actually how homogeneous the responses were. Which we don't normally see. We don't normally see this. So, you and I, we got a little chuckle the other day because I was struggling to call out interesting nuances in the poll results. Mm -hmm. They're just not there in the terms of the differences between school types. Everybody seems to be dialed in on the same stuff. And I think that might reflect kind of the common nature of the challenges we felt the pandemic. Yep. It, it, everybody had a little different experience, but it hit us all pretty hard in a way. Um, and by pandemic, I mean the larger 2020 experience, which includes the murder of George Floyd and everything that has come after since. Uh, in the equity conversation across campus, as well as the economic struggles that a lot of our students are feeling. So a larger pandemic experience, not just simply masks and distancing and things along those lines. So yes, it was very uh, homogeneous in the poll results, and I thought that was quite surprising. Um, do you have any other commentary on that, other than the, like, well, we all felt the pandemic, you know, it hit us all. Uh, well, I think one of the things that, that stood out to us, and this is previewing uh, what was clustered toward the top of the results was that the pandemic created so much uncertainty for our leaders and our partners that that are trying to support their students. They, I mean, physically couldn't find some of their students, right? They were trying to get, to figure out where they were, how they could get them the yeah. support and resources they needed, and who needed them was a, was a major question. And now I think as we've seen the pandemic evolve, more of the questions have been around what happened, how did we do, and and how are we doing moving forward? And so, I, I, if I if I can give a spoiler here, uh, there was a big grouping of topics toward the top around data and analytics, metrics and accountability, disaggregation of the data for for finding equity gaps. A lot of those topics scored into the three threes and 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 scores like that which are quite high um for our for our topic poll um and we've been trying to figure out what the nuance is there in terms of are, are folk are, are folks more interested in the accountability piece are they more interested in the disaggregation of the data because they're trying to figure out where their equity gaps are mm -hmm. that's been really interesting to try to to, to get people to to sort through um so that definitely stood out to me uh, another thing, and I think we can talk about this as well, is uh, an oldie but a goodie was up at the top, which was around the faculty role in student success, um, which has been one of the most popular um, topics that that we've engaged with over the years, whether it's faculty engagement with um, with student success or with technology. Um, what's their again? What is their role? Um, so I think that was interesting to see to see come up toward the top as well. I don't know what what of that stood out to you, but those were two things that I that caught my attention at least. The faculty role topic is always a little bit of a chuckle for me because that's something that we work on uh, pretty regularly and have done for, for quite some time. Right. This is something that you're interested in, audience. Um, go into eaba.com uh, and look for the Student Success Best Practice Library. You'll see a whole section on working with your faculty uh, and a variety of different resources there. It is an evergreen topic, but I know you and I have had some chuckles in the past when we've gone, we just worked on this. We just produced right. a whole study and they right. want more. Right. Right. So it's one of those things that is always evergreen that's in there. And usually at the top of the list, it's right there again. So, you know, that's another one of those things. I also think that it's interesting to call out the, the quick wins topic. We put a little 
One of the topics there was kind of uh, meant to be a, uh, a calibration topic. Uh, it's called quick win retention tactics because who wouldn't want that? And if anything, we expected scored, that to score pretty well. Right, we expected to be at the top. Well, if anything scores above that, <laughs> then you know it's really hot. And sure enough, student success metrics and accountability was the only topic that scored above that. It was the top topic with a 327 GPA, I might add, which is really strong, as you well know. So everybody wants this, but nobody wants accountability, right? Like this isn't the sort of thing that higher ed does. In fact, some people listening may have gone into higher ed to avoid that sort of structure where they would have found uh, you know, goals and business metrics and things along those lines uh, in a different kind of environment. Yet they are asking for it now. And that is coupled with looking for disaggregated data to support equity, and dashboards and data visualization, two other analytic topics that all scored above a 3.0, as you noted. There is a clustering there of kind of data ideas. Let's come back to that accountability topic because we've gotten some really good feedback about that from folks. Because I don't know, it, it was a bit of a, a head scratcher for me when I saw it and I know for you, but we've gotten a little bit of, of feedback and it's starting to make a lot more sense to us now. So maybe share a little bit and encourage the listeners to also think about their own lives and. Yeah, you know, you're feeling some of the same stuff too. And if you are, give us a call. We'd love to hear your stories. Anyway, yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about that feedback that we're hearing about why people might be interested in a topic that normally we're allergic to in higher ed. You know what I mean? Right. Right. No, I, I we were surprised, as you said, and we were we were trying to figure out. There, there's been obviously a lot of attention on let's look at our retention rates, let's look at our graduation rates, let's look at time to degree and student debt and, and all of those things over the past couple of years. So it was surprising to see that so far at the top and then especially when it was paired with the, the other word accountability. And so when we were talking to partners about it, I thought one of the most interesting things was was back to something you and I were talking about before was the the point around uncertainty and a, and a bit of blindness, frankly, around what what is going on with our efforts to reach students? What's going on in our courses and how are students doing in them? Again, within and uh, within the context of the pandemic, the return to campus that, that many folks have experienced. And I think that was, at least in some of the early conversations that I've had about the results, it was the focus on, we just need to know more about what is happening and who our interventions, our attempts to contact, our different courses, again, who are they affecting in different ways by race and ethnicity, by income, by location, all those sorts of things. Folks are trying to figure out what their world looks like now um, in its current state and then a retrospective, I think, on on how things went during the pandemic. I don't know if you've heard differently, but that that's really struck me as, as just a, a cry for visibility into what's happening. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic because uh, the vibe I'm getting is we don't know what's going on anymore because all of our heuristics and rules of thumb and such are all out the window because everything's changed. Um, and I think it's actually a commentary on how remarkably stable higher ed was before the pandemic. Uh, this was mm -hmm. before your time, but back when I was just a baby researcher at EB, we were just getting going. Uh, we did a little kind of fun analysis where we looked at the U.S. News Top 25 from the year 2007, which was the year we were then, compared to its very first year, which was in the mid 80s. And what we found was of the top 25 schools, 23 of them were the same. Still the same, right. They were just in different Things orders. Things don't move too much there. Right, and then you know the two that had swapped out were like now 26th and 27th. Right. Way. So still not much movement. And then we compared it to the top 25 Fortune 500 companies. 
and only two of those were the same <laughs> over that same wow. period of time. So it's just like it shows you just how stable this industry normally is relative to, say, other sectors of our economy. But that also breeds some culture that is based around some long-held assumptions, and we find comfort in those things. Mm -hmm. That's how we run our shows. Except what if those things are all gone now? And now suddenly we need to count things like maybe we didn't have to do before. So I'm with you on that. I think there's another angle on this, too. And we heard this when we talked to our um, uh, innovation council. And the idea was, look, I'm a AVP, I'm a dean, I'm a director, you know, sort of mid-level middle manager type. All my folks have been at home, you know, for the last two years in some way, shape or form. What are they even up to? And can we go and describe some of the good things that's happened here? We're meeting with more students because we're meeting with them virtually. We've got better employee engagement because we, they can have work hours that are shaped around their family instead of the other way around. You know, some of the kind of good stuff, I dare say, that has come out of the pandemic, uh, that flexible lifestyle. And it's not so much in holding people accountable in the sense that this person isn't doing their job. It's actually the other way around. It's actually, you're doing great. No need to come into the we office. Right. Yeah, and we didn't know. We didn't know how great you were doing within, yeah. the, within this uncertain time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like a positive thing in the sense of, yeah, we want to be able to celebrate what we're doing here. And on top of that, the third thing, which you and I know very well, it, in a tough budget environment, if you find yourself in that way as a school, Having some numbers to bring to the conversation makes it a lot easier to start arguing for additional investment. I had a little bit of a chuckle a couple of years ago when I was talking to one of our partners and he was trying to go advocate for more advisors. Uh, and he used some of our, the analysis that you and I did a couple of years ago mm -hmm. on the ROI of hiring an advisor right. uh, in terms of the recaptured tuition revenue that you would get from retention. And uh, he was going and using that argument to go ask for more advisors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a budget meeting. And he says, I got the money. But that's because I was the only one that showed up with any data. Everybody right. else was just going up trying to say, please give me the money, but couldn't prove why or where it would go. Mm -hmm. Metrics like this help you make that case. So in a world where everything's changing and where a manager might also be dealing with the great resignation, we're trying to keep this person in place. Let me show you these numbers and why we should give them a raise. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, I think that it becomes a lot interesting uh, for, for a middle manager to have a little bit more well, I don't know, um, just swaying what they're doing and how they're they're operating their business and interacting with the, the larger part of the institution. Yeah, I, I, the, the other thing on the, when you brought up resources, it made me think of was it, it, even if you're not advocating for new resources, you may be advocating for shifting around where you, mm -hmm. where you have staff, where you have service hours, where you're allocating appointments and, and the effort of staff. I mean, I think one of the things that we've heard, I, I don't think we have um, benchmarks on this yet, but anecdotally from several partners is they're, they're shifting around service times of yeah. advising and tutoring. Um, one partner, I, I can't remember, um, which partner I was talking to was saying we we surfaced a need for weekend uh, mm -hmm. advising and tutoring that we never would have realized, but but students were clearly emailing us. They were talking to us on Zoom much more regularly, and this idea of more flexible hours became at least slightly more quantifiable for them. Um, so it wasn't to your point, Ed. It wasn't it wasn't about is somebody doing their job well or not. It was much more of what's happening and what's working well and what are the needs. Uh, and I think that's been such a, a strong desire yeah. um, uh, throughout the pandemic. 
another topic that was close to the top that I think this is all connected to was the, uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was around alerts and interventions and cases and finding data on whether those worked is obviously something that a lot of our partners spend a lot of time on. We spend a lot of time on, but there's always that that kind of holy grail of uh, who didn't respond to our outreach, who didn't respond to our intervention, and why. And that's, I think, uh, also part of this this data and analytics uh, and metrics conversation. And that was a very expert pivot to the second thing that we wanted to say here, uh, which is that another kind of cluster of responses that rose to the top all had pertained to equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and the specific topic you were referencing before I have them pulled up right here uh, is alerts, interventions, and support for different kinds of students. So can we differentiate what we're doing depending on the population of students that we're working right. with? Because we've got a great white paper that's coming out uh, right now, and it was a connected presentation before about called Misconnections, mm-hmm. which is all about how can we write emails uh, to draw students in, especially along equity lines, if they're experienced, you know, they've gotten an early alert or something along those lines. How are we making that understand that this is a welcoming thing that we're trying to help you with and not calling you to the principal's office or, you know, you're not in trouble. Like, this is not a negative thing. It has a lot to do with the ability to rapport with the student before they get that alert. What kind of words are you using in your outreach and your email? And it makes a big difference. So yeah. pretty basic stuff. But there's an extreme interest. In fact, that was the third, uh, tied for third on the list, along with disaggregated data to support mm-hmm. equity. So yeah. these are really, really hot topics. Uh, right in here. And then I'll ha- I'll let you know that fourth on the list, or sorry, eighth on the list was student community and belonging, which I think leads right. into uh, these issues as well. Yeah, just a note on that on that white paper, a big shout out to Timmy C. Fairfax, who's the, the lead author on it. And and one of the things that I, I loved about the the framing of that was around the the element of trust and uh, do students trust the communication that that mm-hmm. is coming to them as part of an intervention? Do they trust the person that it's coming from? Or if it's not coming from a person, they they may not trust it as much as you as you would hope they would. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that was a great framing of the of the work. Yeah, it's one of those interesting topics. I got to work really close with Nisi on that paper, and uh, it's always one of those things that I get excited about. You know, where you, it's like this is a small change. This is just use slightly different text in this email and you'll get a better response rate. You know, it's easy stuff that you don't really have to change what you're doing that much. It's just upskilling a little bit. Mm -hmm. And in general, people want this. Uh, I recall a few years ago, our colleague, Lindsay Myers, who used to be a seventh grade uh, language arts teacher in Baltimore, uh, actually was going around with a presentation where she had like someone's email marked up, like as if she was graded, you know, with like an X circle at the top. (laughs) And people loved it because, you know, it was, it's her, but it's also, you know, the the uh, sort of notion of what they were getting at. But in any event, we got a little bit off topic on that. Let's come on back to this. The the uh, interesting part about the equity work for me is that it is so high up on the list and it remains there. Yes. Uh, you and I have had infinite number of equity conversations over the past uh, really year and a half, almost two years now, uh, as this has been something that higher ed has been processing, metabolizing, like trying to figure out its stance on. And one of the unique things that we know is this has gone from being, you know, where there might be one or two really, really passionate, engaged people that are trying to convince their whole campus to, at a lot of places, now the whole cabinet's on board. Maybe the board of directors is even on board. Now the president is now going to make this his or her big thing, you know, that they're going to, it's a legacy building thing for them. So it seems like there's great momentum here. And I find that to be very, very encouraging because we know that you know things pop up and then they wane over time. This seems to have some sustained energy. 
Now, there's going to be plenty of folks, and I think you and I would agree, that we aren't making progress fast enough. Right. It's encouraging that progress is still being made or there's a desire thereof. Uh, it does not feel like lip service, so to speak. It feels like real desire for change here. I find that very encouraging. Do you I agree. You yeah, okay. You agree with that? Yeah, no, no. I, I definitely agree. I mean, I, I think we we have to avoid the the idea that that equity could ever be a, a you can't see my air quotes but air quotes a hot topic right it, we're we're talking about the 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 lived experiences of of students and their families and their communities and uh, so that this one particularly hurts when attention on it wanes right because you're you're when the attention on it wanes you're losing attention on uh, some of those students who have been historically underserved um, and that you you have designed your institutions in ways that that may not be serving those students as well uh, as well as you would want and so the sustained focus here I think is quite um, is quite heartening uh, even though I, I also agree Ed, that you know we're not we're not making the progress that we would like to see and at the speed and the pandemic made that even harder, right? I mean, when we when we think about unfinished learning from K-12 and trying to, to make sure that our students have the support that they need, especially as they transition from high school to college or from the workforce uh, into college or, or back and forth, right? Um, we need to make sure we understand kind of what their their situation is with their their readiness to, um, to to succeed in their courses, and and again, what supports do they need? Um, so I, I I don't know if you're if you're hearing uh, other nuances to the the equity conversation now coming out of the pandemic, but I think some of those uh, around unfinished learning have been some of the most interesting I've had so far. Uh, it is very interesting, and as you well know, we have a big report that I wrote. Uh, which we put about a month ago called the pandemic ripple effects, mm -hmm. uh, where we cover four such topics, uh, student, in, student engagement, mental health, transfer students, and as you mentioned, unfinished K-12 learning. That's a big one uh, because it is, they're coming our way. You know, this high school seniors will be college students next year, high school juniors in two years. And already we're starting to hear anecdotal evidence from the ground that, hey, this this crop of first-year students is different than we've experienced before. And the admissions are looking like, you know, we're, we're also seeing some weakness there relative to where our numbers would have been in the past. Weakness is, you know, a little bit pejorative term to use, but I think that's maybe mm -hmm. how a lot of enrollment managers would describe it. Uh, and, you know, we're starting to see this stuff happening because, well, frankly, like as disrupted as higher ed was, you know, K-12 in a lot of ways, much more so. In any event, if you'd like to check out that report, go on to eba.com, look for pandemic ripple effects. I feel like I'm plugging a lot of our reports here, David, on this podcast. But you know, I, I mean, when you put both of us on, we're we're going to end up talking about various reports that that we've yeah. contributed to or that our colleagues have. So if, uh, uh, the, the hazard of of putting us on, if the readers haven't figured it out, we're both big nerds. So well, here we are. <laughs> one thing, one thing you mentioned, it's, it's again, in your, in your report on the pandemic ripple effects, but you mentioned it even at the beginning of this conversation that, uh, you know, as we're, as we're coming toward, toward the end that I didn't want to lose was uh, transfer students. You, you yes. had mentioned before that um, it was, well, and mental health, right. Uh, as two topics that they didn't do as well as, as maybe we had thought they would on the topic poll. And, and I think uh, to, to skip to transfer students, I think mental health, was one where the audience who completed our topic poll would all tell you it's critically important to them, but they don't necessarily control the interventions. They're not counselors themselves. They're not leading counseling centers, uh, much more in the sort of uh, associate vice president for student success, uh, provost presidents. Yes. They don't control that as directly. But 
I'd be curious for your thoughts on on transfer students and sure. and and transfer student support and why it it kind of fell in a it wasn't it wasn't low but it was certainly middling. It is the same thing in my mind. So okay. I was expecting mental health to be at the top, if not the very top topic, based on conversations you and I have every mm-hmm. single day. And it is a top concern. I mean, people are dialed in on it. But to your point, if I'm not actually seeing myself as able to do anything about that, then what can I really do about that? Mm-hmm. So please do research for me. Of course, the irony here being that our mental health research that we have done, again, on EAB.com, uh, points <laughs> to how to expand the uh, the mental health infrastructure approach availability outside of the counseling mm-hmm. really is everybody's responsibility, which is why I make it a point to model that, uh, as you have you seen in my presentations recently, talking yep. about my own mental health journey, uh, because one of the big things is you got to, you know, make it normal, <laughs> make it, right. make it right. people are okay and comfortable talking about this stuff and not holding it in. But you're right. Let's talk about transfer students, because I know we've got a, a coming to the end here. Transfer is so interesting, right? It was relatively low on the list. But this is the ultimate, what can I do about a problem? Because it takes two to tango when you're talking about transfer. you got to have a donator school and a receiver school. Um, and what happens there is that since we work with individual institutions, there's a gap in the middle where no mm-hmm. one's really focused on that problem unless it's an overarching structure by which both institutions are a part of, like a really powerful state system, for instance. Right. Or a dedicated partnership like we see in the D.C. area between George Mason and Northern Virginia Community College called Mason Advance, where they're producing a lot of um, computer engineering type talent for our new Amazon office. Well, those are special special partnerships, but they're the rarity out there. Most, For the most part, students are left to bridge that gap themselves. And you and I both know all the ills of transfer quite well. Students who initially start off to do a two plus two, rarely complete the bachelor's degree at the end of it. We know the credit articulation is horrendous in a lot of cases. You know, you might lose 40 or more percent of your credits in the move. You paid for those credits, but you don't get to apply them to your bachelor's degree because that's the way it is. And you may recall, we talked about this a few years ago, haven't come up uh, quite a bit, but uh, we've seen some analyses that say from a state perspective, two plus two is supposed to be the economical way to do this. But if we're spending taxpayer dollars on producing degree holders, actually maybe is a less efficient way to go about it because we're not getting that completion moment as the students are moving between schools. And the last thing I'll say about transfer, which is really keenly important, and you and I both know this, it is an underreported equity issue. The students who are not making the leap are more likely to be Black, more likely to be Latinx, less likely to be white, and less likely to be Asian. Those two groups right there, white and Asian, are much more likely to complete their bachelor's degree as a result of uh, that transfer than the other two groups I mentioned. So if we are looking at closing equity gaps from a societal level, not at the institution level, but at a societal level, this is a big area of focus which we're completely blind to, except for the people that have been talking about transfer for years and years and years now. It's just not something that larger higher ed is even really aware of, in my opinion. I just said a lot right there. Feel free to jump in on any of that. No, I, I, I agree. And I mean, you, you said a lot because it's a complex, it's a complex issue, right? And, and, and when you're answering one topic poll question about it, uh, it can feel, I think, in some ways, like a, a bit of a choose your own adventure because there are so many elements to it. There's an academic component to transfer. There's a social component to transfer. There's the financial component to transfer. And 
you know, connecting this back to our data and analytics and, and visibility into the performance of a school, the, the, the how a student is doing across their journey, there's a lot of blindness about it. I mean, we've seen this in, in our work with uh, the, the schools in the Milwaukee, Kenosha, Moonshot region, where the flow of students across institutions is somewhat of a mystery. There's not there's not a ton of shared wow. data. There's not a ton of shared knowledge of the support students are getting at various points across that journey and even the steps that students have to go through. So I, I think I think transfer is a is such a challenge and it, it's so hard to wrap your arms around in in a in a study uh, as a professional working in student success because it's so multifaceted. So we are um, we're, we're always challenged to figure out exactly what angle we need to, to focus on there. Um, and again, I mean, as, as Ed, you've said throughout this, you know, if, if folks want to give us direction, more direction and, and attention on that, you know, let us let us know. We'd love to, to hear more about it because um, it's such a critical social challenge um, when we talk about social mobility, when we talk about the role of, of educational institutions in regions. Um, but but it's a complex one. It's it's very complicated. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'll talk to you about transfer all day long. Yeah, no, we could go, we could go for hours on that one. We should wrap up here. Uh, the, um, uh, where do we go from here? I suppose is the next question. Yep. And uh, I was thinking a little bit about where do all these things come together? And it immediately occurs to me that we've got a, a couple of kind of, exp- you know, a couple of projects we're working on. One a little bit of an experiment, one a little bit less so, more, more developed, the moonshot that we were alluding to before. Mm-hmm. But we're working with schools right now uh, building out dashboards that they can actually monitor and look at and drill down into a lot of their, their equity data because it was in disparate systems all over campus and we're pulling that together for them. So they're working on that kind of analytics angle and the equity angle at the same time, recognizing that we don't really even have visibility into where our problems are. And you know from your work in Milwaukee that once you start turning over rocks and, and you know opening up the drawers and looking inside everything, you start finding all kinds of weird stuff that uh, has been getting in the way of students for a long time, but might not have been super visible. So where we go from here, I think as a, as an industry, you know, offer your thoughts on whether you agree or disagree on that is we as EAB need to better serve you with better analytic capabilities, uh, bringing a lot of those on the campus, uh, helping you become data leaders. Uh, if this is something you're interested in, of course, reach out to us and we'll bring you along. It's where I want to spend a lot of my time over the next year. And I know that you will as well. So, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think the the real the real challenge is in the, the kind of marriage between the visibility into what's happening, the, the data and analytics focus, and then the the fact that the data and analytics don't give you the answer in and of themselves, right? You've got to pair that with asking the right, especially equity-minded questions about why are those gaps emerging? What what are the leading indicators of those gaps in our graduation and retention right. rates that that led to this? Um, what are the policies and procedures on our campus that might be contributing to that? I, I think that's where the 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 real progress happens is when you've got that kind of equity-minded questioning of your own data, self-reflective, introspective, look at the the way the institutions are constructed. And that's more of what we're seeing our partners push toward. Um, And I think the pandemic pushed them farther in that direction to challenge their own assumptions, challenge the standard way of of doing things. Um, And, you know, hopefully, hopefully that leads to some, some positive 
um, positive changes in, in student success moving forward. Um, but we're here, we're, we're along for the ride as well. And, and we'd love to, to help out as, uh, as folks are learning. Well, that seems like a great place to uh, put a bow on this uh, for today. David, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Uh, I thought you did great for your first time here. Hopefully it won't be your Thanks. last. Uh, yeah, it was great to, great to join. Yeah, hopefully we can uh, bring you back to talk about the moonshot a little bit more in the future. Would love to. Thanks. All right. Uh, well, thanks everyone for your listen today, and uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when our guests talk about how to create a culture of accountability within your admissions team. Until then, thank you for your time. <laughs>